It's how the individual consciousness is related both to your embodied experience and then also into varying degrees of an encounter with things outside of us. going down everybody welcome to owls at dawn we are just two dudes from southern california who studied philosophy politics and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast for we could bullshit with impunity i am austin hayden and i'm troy polidori and this week we're going to be talking about something that we've teased for the last few episodes it started off with troy recommending the book of this uh property um, on his Sticky Leaves a few episodes back, and then I watched the TV series, and then now Troy has watched the TV series, and so now we're going to be talking about Station Eleven. Yeah, dude? Well, wait a minute, dude. I, I, I Back up. I got to ask a philosophical question. <laughs> okay. Like, how, how much intentionality do you have to have to constitute teasing something in the future, in the sense that we're talking about? Because... I talked about the book yeah. and then you sticky leaved the show and then we decided after that to do an episode on it. So I don't know if we had the proper intentions in those quote unquote teases for them to constitute teasing unless you don't have to have the intentions and if they just function as a teaser yeah. for the listener. Is that the idea? They will have always been a teaser. <laughs> Uh, in the moment. So now we are reconstituting that very old sticky leaf, not very, like what, a month and a half old sticky leaves. We're reconstituting It's, it's that. a proleptic tease. Yeah. yeah that proleptic was the, in the sense of like the, the exa- future thing reconstitutes. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> so so for people who aren't familiar with the show or the book, can you give them just a, a, an elevator pitch on why they should stick around and check out the rest of the episode and why this book and TV series are so interesting? Yeah, so one way of setting it up is that Station Eleven is about a worldwide flu pandemic that decimates 99% of all of humanity. So it's post-apocalyptic in the sense that probably everybody's tired of right now. And certainly in the midst of a pandemic, that might sound like something you'd be too wary to actually, you know, be entertained by or find any meaning in or whatever. But I will say that I think, and I think you'll reiterate this, Austin, is that um, both the book and the show, maybe the show even more than the book, we can talk about that, wow. is able is able to problematize all the different approaches to post-apocalyptic literature and um, content of, of any media sort uh, in a way that's, that's hopeful, meaningful, hmm. and is kind of a, a subtle or sometimes not so subtle criticism of how that genre is cast uh, in popular media today. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I love it. It's it's oddly enough one of the most um, life affirming and joyous series that I can recall seeing, and I feel like it stuck with me. Uh, I, I finished it a few weeks ago now, and it has stuck with me more in tone and mood, or as the kids say these days, the vibe. It was a vibe. And and I think it's a testament to how it was able to kind of explore territory that is fucking I think people are just done with talking about, but in a way that didn't fall into a lot of like the um, technocratic or a lot of the sort of um, 
cynical ways that we are talking about the pandemic and all of the political machinations around it and a lot of the like social chaos surrounding it. And I think it does it in a way that I don't know that I think it really kind of spurs us on to affirming the beauty of life, humanity, nature, art. And um, I, to me, it's 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 an extremely profound series. I haven't read the book, so I can't speak to the book. But um, yeah, it's really stuck with me. Like, like even just now, I'm just like picturing that that train of uh, the theater troupe, you know, that like wagon train that they have. I'm just picturing it and I'm filled with a type of joy, mm-hmm. you know. So we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get into the main segment. But, yeah, it just it it kind of like wells up from within me in a very sort of visceral way. And I think it's I think it's beautiful. So, yeah, it, it was very easy for me to imagine you on the traveling symphony. Anybody <laughs> that I know you are the most likely to have signed up for the traveling symphony. Shit, I'm not even going to wait for the apocalypse. I'm starting the traveling symphony now. In a way, in a way, I kind of have like that's kind of how I view my life in so many ways. So, oh, it's kind of perfect. But so yeah, so that's what we're going to uh, talk just a about. Very slow wheel. Yeah, exa- exactly, exactly. A very big one. It goes online. Um, everything, but. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what we'll talk about in the main segment. But yeah, before then, um, just a quick reminder. Uh, If you could throw us some pennies, that would really help us a lot. I've said this in the past. We've got a new producer, Maddie. We love you, Maddie. She's been doing so much great work for us, Um, you know, getting the podcast out, editing it, doing social media stuff, and then helping us with um, scheduling and and allowing us to kind of free up some some space so that we can get some guests on and and things like that. And also just so that we can free up our our time to kind of dedicate a little bit more to the content. So it's been great to have her. So um, uh, the more that you can contribute to us, then the more that we can offer obviously offer to her. So if you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn, that would really be a benefit. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And uh, we've got some bonus content there. And also, Troy, is um, have people been commenting um, in terms of uh, the next patron chosen topic? Do we have a couple of suggestions so far? Yeah, we have a few suggestions, but if you are a patron uh, or thinking about signing up to be a patron, you can go to our Patreon page. And one of the most recent threads is where you can suggest topics for next patron sponsored episode. So we want to get quite a few in there so that we can have a nice range of choices for everybody to choose from. So yeah, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. If you're a patron, suggest whatever topics you can think of that revolve in any way around the type of stuff that we talk about, which is fairly wide, a range, I think, right? Uh, pretty pretty damn wide. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, sick. All right, so before we start talking about Station Eleven in the main segment, the first thing we got to do is what we all love most about Owls at Dawn, I'm assuming at least, and that's the shitty minute. The shitty minute is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. So, Austin, what's got you down? Well, I tweeted about this, and then you actually replied to my tweet a few weeks ago. But it's just something that I'm just becoming more and more... I don't know. It's almost like I'm becoming more and more convinced or more and more sure of my position on this. And I'm not sure how it will actually manifest in terms of action. But my gripe is this. And then we can talk about maybe what I'm going to do about that gripe. And maybe we can offer some things, maybe what we can do to help us think through this gripe, because I think we all have similar gripes if you care about the world in any meaningful sense. 
And that is... I don't know, man. The shitty minute ain't about solving problems. That's the shitty minute, man. And that is that the Democratic Party is sclerotic, and it needs to fucking just die. And I think <laughs> that it is not ever going to be threatened. They're not ever going to cancel student loans. They're not going to give you any of the uh, wins and victories that they... Um, they kind of dangle in front of us. And ultimately, it's just going to become more and more of a uh, corporate-backed party while they are feeding people little tidbits um, in the culture war so that they can feel good at the level of aesthetic and symbolic value while they suck humans dry by selling us out to the fucking metaverse or to whatever lobbies they are that um, they're jerking off in the back rooms. And I think that we need to let it die. And I know that people are going to not like this because then it's like, yes, but there are some games that are better than the other guys. But so long as you play this, but it's better than the other guys logic, you're uh, I think we're just allowing them to continue to melt our brains and our spirits into powder and uh, just pound us into the fucking ground. And I think they're awful. And I think that they are uh, cynical. And I don't really know what to do. But I feel like they need to just be completely eradicated. And um, yeah, and I don't know what the path is forward. And I know a lot of people are frustrated about it. But I, for one, you know how I feel right now? I feel right now like I can comfortably say that I will never vote again for a democratic president. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't vote for like social, like like justice Democrats, or if there are some more kind of like radical progressives that get on it down ballot. But I'm saying that in terms of the president, I feel like I can confidently say that I don't ever want to do that. But then I'm like, but then why? Like, why, why am I making, why am I drawing the line there? What good does that do? Granted, I also still have voting rights in the state of California, which is not a swing state. So I guess maybe I can have a little bit more freedom for that. But then that's still getting into the whole like political posturing shit. And I just don't even want to do it. I'm done with it, man. I think that democracy was a great idea. And I think we're kind of seeing the failure of representative democracy. And I think it's an end. And I think we literally need to start thinking about new novel forms of what it means to even govern a society in a global space that is living online, that is digitized, everything is assetized. Um, I just think that politics, the way that we understand it now, is outdated, it's not working, and it literally is just serving the corporate interests that are being driven by this larger uh, socioeconomic logic. And if we're really going to fight and contest things, it has to be at that socioeconomic level. And I just don't think that politics, the way that we conceive of it in the popular sense, is the way forward for that. And I don't really have any answers for that, but this is just me. I'm just expressing, okay? This is just me on the therapist couch saying, this is how I feel. I'm venting. So don't take what I'm saying as some sort of like rational decision. Because I don't really fucking know, and I need fucking help. It's a shitty minute, yeah. Yeah, because I don't know. And so if you have any suggestions out there, if you're listening, help a brother out. Um, Troy, I don't know, but I literally, that's how I feel now. Uh, I was listening to something the other day about AOC and how she's not willing to criticize Nancy Pelosi, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? This is what happens. This is what fucking happens. And like, yeah, like I'm really glad that AOC did a lot of things to kind of like show a, a new generation of what it means to be involved in political engagement. But like, Remember how she fucking protested with the Sunrise Movement out in front of Pelosi's office to get them to, like, force to talk about the Green New Deal? Now she's doing all this, like, backroom, like, she's, like, waffling on, like, whether or not she's going to criticize uh, whether or not Pelosi should be in power and shit like that because she's 
clearly they're doing like backroom deal shit and she's probably been pulled into a back room that's like, hey, we love your spirit. We love the fact that you have however many millions of people that you can reach on Twitter. We love the fact that you're the face of a new generation. But you know what? How about you don't criticize the powers uh, that be uh, in public so much, you know, because we'll, we'll work with you if you can do that a little bit. But you just got to not do like I, I and maybe that's not even true, but that's what I feel like is happening. And and I'm like, well, yeah, of course, because you cannot go into a regime and then not start to think in that way. Like, it just will happen. You start hanging out with church folks, you start singing fucking praise songs. You start hanging out with Steeler fans, you're gonna start wearing black and black and yellow. It's just what's gonna fucking happen, okay? By osmosis. So, I just, I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm at my wits end, and I just think, and I know that, like, this is maybe me getting like, oh, it's fucking below the system. Smash the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time for it to crumble. It's time for it to crumble, but I think we can do it in ways that are productive and that are beautiful, that aren't just simply like angry and let's throw a grenade into the system, you know? And I don't know how exactly. Like I can't like write a book on step by step, but nevertheless, I believe it and I can almost sense it. I just don't fully know how to articulate it. But yeah, that's my shitty man. Yeah, dude. I mean, I, I obviously share a lot of the frustrations that you have and I'm, you know, a, a more in like in the depth of it than you are just in the sense of actually living in the States, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I have a lot of the, the fellow feeling, you know, and the sympathy, um, that's going on there. And I also think that there's some sense in which at the very least, I think anybody of good faith has to admit that things aren't working and, and clearly any, anything like an external shock to the system is devastating given that COVID was obviously nothing compared to, the things that will happen in clim with climate change for the next couple of decades, right? Let alone any other external shocks that might happen, um, and that's scary to think about. Like you're seeing, you're seeing a weak structure being exposed um, as far as the stability of the country. And I think I'm talking about stability in sort of the macro sense that involves like social and political stability, in addition to you know more concrete things like infrastructure and whatnot. Um, I mean, I, I guess I just it depends a lot on what we mean by like smash the state or whatever. If we're talking kind of about like, uh, um, what are the, the, the five, the five forms of a revolution or return in the state? Well, so it's, it's four from Eric Olin, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's smash the state, uh, reform the state, escape the state. And then it's, uh, well, it's, are they all involved in the state? I mean, it's like, yeah, smash, reform, escape. And then um, I can't remember what the term for the last one is, but it's like uh, fucking. Oh, God, what is it? I can't remember what the little pithy the, the word is, but it's the one that he chooses, <laughs> which is uh, like, <laughs> building, like building co-ops and, and productive programs that actually kind of like destroy it from within. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry to put you on the spot that that was a lot. <laughs> no, that's okay. I just couldn't, um, I couldn't remember the, the term, but I, the idea is, is like, he's like, yeah, let's build co-ops and let's advocate for like UBI and things that actually contest the power of the state. Um, but yeah. Like Andre Gorz's non-reformist reforms kind of idea. Kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So yeah, I mean, it depends what we mean by that. Cause I mean, obviously I think that like 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 physical overturning of the state via violent revolution probably isn't a great idea unless circumstances are extremely dire, right? To the point where we're talking about like humanitarian justice versus 
kind of social justice, right? Um, and maybe they'll come in time when that's, when that's necessary. I don't know, but I don't think that it's now. But at the same time, like, there's clearly a sense in which the two parties, the duopoly, holds hostage anybody who wants to make the world better and guilts anybody into voting for Democrats simply by pointing to someone a little bit more to the right and saying, yeah, but what about that guy? And that's not a it's not a functioning system generally, but it's absolutely not a functioning system in terms of continually getting people motivated to support your cause. Right. It's it's clearly demotivating people um, to the point where like despair becomes and it's going to happen in 2024, if not, you know, later on this year in the midterms where they're going to be shocked by a terrible unforeseen loss. We did all that we could and yet they still vote against us, yada, yada. Um, not seeing at all um, the forest for the trees there and and how all the lack of movement and all the promises unkept and all the we're going to solve the pandemic and do so much better than the previous administration did um, just clearly was not satisfied in any way. Um, well, and how much it was how much is it really going to hurt them? Um, if they lose the midterms, they're going to come out in public and they'll be like, oh, you know, damn it. You know, we did everything. But they know they know they have so much data. There are so many people. They know exactly like within a couple of points what the votes are going to be for the most part. Right. They know they're going to fucking lose. Right. But they don't really care because they're not actually going to no, be I mean, threatened. Oh, that, that's the thing. Right. And that's why I don't I don't. And I'm not saying you're saying this, but like the, the idea of. Well, the key thing we need to decide is whether we're going to vote for Democrats or withhold our vote in protest. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I mean, both of those are magical thinking. Like your vote for a Republican or a Democrat in November every four years is not the most important political act that you do every four years. And if you think that way, mm. that's just like, that's crazy magical thinking on both sides, right? Mm. And so the people who are like, you know, vote blue no matter who, this is the most important thing you can do to save millions of lives in the future. Like that's as crazy and magical thinking as the people who are like, withhold your vote because otherwise they'll never learn. Like they're not going to learn anyway, right? Mm. You have to force them. And by force them, I don't mean like at gunpoint. I mean like you have to have a social movement that's strong enough to make them do the things that you want and not just pretty please will elect you, please follow through on your promises, which is not going to happen. They're not beholden to you once they get into office. They're beholden to powerful interests and you are not the powerful interests unless you make yourself the powerful interests in the form of a social movement and specifically in the form of a labor movement. And that sucks because you can't do that in a year or maybe even five or 10 years. It takes a long ass time. Um, and I think we've on this podcast been pretty optimistic at certain points that with the Bernie movement and stuff, that there was at least the first fruits of something like that happening. And that was seemingly snuffed out, right, mm. um, by the Democratic Party and by corporate interests that govern them. That said, the history of social movements says that it's not linear yeah. in progress, right, that it happens in fits and starts. So it's always possible that the connections that were made in 2016 that were reignited in 2020 stronger than in 2016 come back again in 2024 or 26 or whatever, right? And who knows in response to what um, social events, political events, you know, environmental events that that can happen. And the key there, I think, is that we just don't know. Um, yeah. That said, I'm still going to probably vote for Democrats. I mean, things could change. Who knows what's going to happen in a couple of years, but I'm still going to vote because I just think voting is like going to the toilet 
like the political act version of going to the toilet. Like you just gotta, you just gotta take your morning constitution and get it over with and move <laughs> on with your day. Like that's voting. Yeah. Yeah. It's but a piece I, of shit, but I like enjoy, this is not, this is I enjoy the morning do. shit. Like that's, that's nice. You would. It's nice. It's, <laughs> there's pleasure there. You get the little like anal no, stimulation. There is, I agree with that. Yeah. It's a, it's fine. You got your like tummy. It's like, it feels good. You know, it does not feel good to go to the fucking voting booth and cast a vote for someone that I think is a, a ghoul, you know? Yeah. Well, think about it as the morning constitution after a long night of, of drinking and then having fast food to soak it all up at 2 a.m. That's, yeah. that's the voting thing that you do. And the point there just being, like, don't consider it the most important political act that you make. And then also have other political actions that are more important, like join a union if you have the you know possibility of doing so. Um, join your local DSA chapter if you have one that's near you. Start a podcast where you bullshit about stuff. <laughs> that's the real political action is podcasting, <laughs> as we all know. That's right. Start a Twitter account where you can uh, post shit and uh, yeah. Change, change minds. Actually, though, but I do feel like part of me does feel maybe this is just because I still have so much of like the hangover of, of kind of like the religious spiritual world around me. I do feel like one of the things that we don't do very well in in like in the the advocacy of political activity is also the kind of like the the the, the activities of, of self or, or like in philosophical terms, like subjective constitution or subjective transformation, like like the 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 empowering of the self through like you know micro political actions, you know, being involved in um you know your we talked about this when um we talked about how you know your job will never love you back, right? That like go and be a part of your like local theater community, or go and be a part of your local bowling club, or go and and uh, you know do like. The local actions and things like that like those things actually do fucking i think i think that they, they, they matter not just in the sense that like as a means to an end but they also matter in the fact that you're actually like living the alternative right you're actually embodying the the other the better world right the new earth that that marx wants to talk about um you know this like this this transformation within um, of the kind of capitalist machinations is something that you live in in the present imminently, you know? Um, it isn't about, like, trying to change things so that we can accede to the kingdom of heaven on earth. I think, I think we need to get rid of that. And I think so much of our political activity is tied into that, like, teleological logic that um, I think we really miss out on maybe the more profound idea of actually just kind of, like, doing the stuff when you wake up, you know, doing the stuff when you talk to your family, doing the stuff when you, um, you know, go to go to your job, doing the stuff when you go grocery shopping. And I know that that's kind of, like, cheesy, like, it could be viewed as kind of, like, cheesy, just, like, love people in your day. But honestly, I mean, when you're on your fucking deathbed, like, what what's going to matter, right? Like... I don't know. I don't know. I know that that might come across as like selfish, individualistic. And, and I think in sometimes it can be packaged that way, but I don't, I don't think it has to be. And so I, I don't know. It's, I mean, David Graeber calls it like everyday communism, right? Like when you're sitting around the table and someone says, pass mm -hmm. the salt and you pass the salt and you just kind of do it. Like that's embodying communism, right? Like that's actually embodying it here. Have a fucking potluck with your friends, you know, um, put on a theater performance for your friends, you know, um, pull all your resources together and throw and throw, throw a party or, um, you know, help out, help out somebody in your neighborhood or, or in your friend group that needs it. Like people do that stuff. But I think my point is, is that we need to recognize that stuff as being really politically potent and not just something that's all like a nice thing that you do but it's not really the goal no that's the shit like that's it like that's 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 the, yeah, the, that's the stuff 
the most important social relations we have that we most value are not capitalist ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's, and there's even just, obviously that's the most meaningful stuff and that's the most important point to make. It's that that's what ultimately matters, right? But even at the sort of, you know, most immediate political level, like people are drawn to reactionary movements, not because they, in their finest hour, find them to be the most plausible ways of organizing society or whatever. They're drawn to reactionary movements because they fucking hate somebody or a whole group of people or they're pissed off or they're sad or some combination of you know negative emotions that they feel. And so they get drawn to these reactionary movements to find someone to blame for those things, hmm. right? So if we can stave off um, those kinds of negative, you know, effective reactions that people have by having kinds of solidarity at this very small scale, even at the bullying league at work, right? In the family, whatever. It's, you know, it's very minor, but that builds up if it happens at a small scale with a wide breadth amongst many different people and it staves off people from getting drawn towards reactionary movements, right? There's a contingent, you know, nearby possible world where a lot of people who, you know, voted for Trump didn't because their life wasn't as shitty, mm. Right. For all sorts of reasons. So at the material level is one thing, and that's an important thing about how politics is important and how having an actual like functioning federal government matters. But also like, you know, if if people had more social solidarity at the small scale, you know, immediate level, then there wouldn't be as many people that are like dying deaths of despair. And then those who don't die but exist in that level of despair often get drawn to those reactionary movements, right? Yeah. So there's a, there, there are good byproducts that happen there. And of course, you need actual like structures and, you know, social unions in the broad sense to exist. You can't just like do it by drinking beers together at the pub, but that's, you know, that's sort of the first step towards that. Yeah. Having forms of community and solidarity that exist at that level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess there's actually kind of a perfect transition to talk about Station Eleven because they um, in the midst of a ah. fucking fucking apocalypse that wipes out 90 something percent of the planet. They uh, find a group, they find a community and they join together and they change some lives and shit like that. So why don't we start talking about Station Eleven? Yeah, dude. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Why don't you give us the lead in here since you have both read the book and watched the series and uh, I will follow your lead, and uh, let's start peeling back some of the uh, cool stuff about this show. Yeah, so I guess first off, spoilers galore, right? We're going to talk <laughs> about the show as if you know the listener has watched the whole thing. So if you haven't seen it and you're thinking about seeing it, I would definitely um, you know pause this, save it, and go watch the series first before you listen to it. That said, it's not really a spoilery show because it's not – it's not super plot driven, even though there are important plot points and there's dramatic plot points. Uh, it's not it's not the kind of like, you know, cliffhanger at the end of every episode kind of a thing where you can't wait to watch the next one. It's very much a contemplative kind of slow burn hmm. um, series. And I appreciate that because that's exactly how the book was. It's, it's more about the moments that happen in between the big dramatic moments than it is about these leading up and building up as a crescendo to big dramatic moments. Even yeah. though there are, of course... Fairly big dramatic moments. Yeah. And, so and here's, here's and the for, thesis. And real quick, for people curious too, it's a mini series. So it's only what, like 10 episodes or something like that? Yeah, it's 10 episodes. Yeah. So it's not like multiple seasons or something like that. It's 10 episodes. They're an hour each, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so assuming that people have seen it, um, here's a thesis that I think might be a, a good way to kind of jump off and we can just touch on things where we where we want to see fit. Um, so post-apocalypticism, right, in media specifically, the way it's portrayed, it seems to me like there's two general modes for how post-apocalyptic literature, film, TV shows, whatever, tend to use the post-apocalyptic setting to say something about um, important about humanity or about the world or something or about meaning in life. One is like the Walking Dead style. And that's like the Hobbesian war of all against all mm. kind of thing, right? Where the post-apocalypse or the apocalypse that destroys the social system exposes how we're actually just horrible people who just want to use each other for our own ends. We're all instrumental reasoners, and that's the extent of all rationality, right? Um, and so if the social system goes away, we'll all just engage in a war of all against all. We won't really be persons anymore. We'll just be elevated animals. Um uh, and so it's very cynical and dark and there's always fighting and it's just a struggle for survival. And all the drama comes from just trying to survive. It's, it's a classic like humans are the real are the real villain, right? Not and the zombies. Yeah. Or the, and and it's all about scarcity of resources and that that's what the cause of conflict is. Right. Which is then about uh, a sort of like re-entrenchment of capitalism. So that's why it's it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, because even in these post-apocalyptic worlds, you still have some sort of proto-capitalist um, logic, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of like in, in, in the Hobbesian form of social contract theory, there's always a just-so story about the origins of humanity, right? It's, it's, it's a just-so story. It's not supposed to be historical, but it's, it's basically like before there was society, we were in a state of nature, and we're all just fighting for resources and the strongest survivor, whatever, right? And then rational enough, competently rational individuals realize they can actually safeguard um, their access to resources better by coming together and forming a contract that they won't, you know, kill each other and steal their shit. Hmm. Um, and so that that contract is sort of the basis of how you figure out your rights and your obligations and stuff like that, right? It's not supposed to be historical, but these kinds of stories do serve as like a reinforcement of that just so story for why we need to have this sort of contracts where we have things like property based upon that and all the different sort of capitalist social relations that follow from it. Uh, so, yeah, it's very much in that kind of Hobbesian line and, and acts as a way to reinforce the need for even even though the, the social forms that we have are super exploitative, we still need them because they're better than this. Right. It's kind of the wink, wink, nudge, nudge part of it. Hmm. So that's one sort of set uh, or, or like subgenre of the post-apocalyptic yeah. um, story, probably, right? Probably the most the common, one, right? Now at least, yeah, in our current scape, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Historically, maybe a little less so, um, but certainly now. And then the other one is like, look, clearly the sort of modern late capitalist social relations are super exploitative and they're destroying us and they're awful. And if we could just blow that shit up, hmm. we would rediscover something unique about human beings and how we're actually these really social beings. And we don't want to be looking at our screens 24-7. And we just want to be hanging out and, and chilling with each other. And actually, if 99% of the world perished overnight, that would open up like a space for freedom, right? And so we would be able to all be like deadheads and like follow our favorite bands and hippie commune and things would actually probably be all right. And it's supposed to be kind of hopeful and optimistic, but actually is kind of naive and Pollyannish at the end. Right. 
Um, and that's less dominant nowadays, but you do see that sometimes. And certainly there are certain strains of the left, I think, that kind of have that sort of post-apocalyptic vision in mind. Um, and so I see Station Eleven, especially in the series, probably even more so than the book, as being like a critique of both of those simultaneously, but a dialectical one. Real quick. Especially real quick, to I'm trying to think of an example of the latter one. Could we think of like Zombieland where like everyone's wiped out, but it's really cool because you have this family and they come together and um, it actually is like really enjoyable. It looks like they have a lot of fun, um, you know, because they, you know, damn it, they got each other sort of thing. Is that kind of what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, you, you actually grow, like it enables you to grow. Like yeah. Jesse Eisenberg becomes like a badass and <laughs> stone, and then only yeah, because yeah, yeah. his true self was exposed by the apocalypse. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I was trying to think of an example there. Sorry. Yeah, see, sorry. So go ahead. Station Eleven kind of. Di- no. Yeah. I hadn't thought of a contemporary example. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. Um, although you know, it's hard to say whether or not Zombieland's trying to be serious about that. But I mean, like those those sentimental moments are meant to be kind of serious. Like they're not ironic. So that's certainly there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Station Eleven seems to me, especially in the series, is kind of a dialectical critique of both of those. And by dialectical, I just mean it's preserving something true about each of those visions because it's not just you know flat rejecting them. Right. Mm. The idea basically being that so the the Walking Dead version, right, the cynical version, is correct in stating that we're very reliant upon the social system we have and the social relations that we find ourselves in to find meaning in the world. Like even scraps of it that we get in a really exploitative and unjust system, we do get some of that. And if it were to be wiped away overnight, especially if that involved most of the people that you love and care about dying and sometimes right in front of you in these horrible ways, that would be traumatic to the point where many people would never be able to come back from that. And you see that in Station Eleven. Many people are not able to come back from the before times. Many people are stuck in the before times or trying to recreate mm. the before times like Clark is, right? Um, some people, as Tyler points out, are not they're, – they're just – they're trying to recreate it and they're going to reintroduce the worst parts. Like he critiques the way that the Severn City Airport is like recreating prisons and this is kind mm. of – the exploitative social relations that existed in the before times. And so he wants there to not be a before anymore, right? And he's right about that. Like he's wrong on a lot of the things, but he's right about that. Um, at the same time, the sort of Pollyanna-ish, you know, maybe Zombieland or whatever version of things is right that the, the current system is super exploitative and there would be room for a, a certain kind of freedom were that to be wiped away overnight. But the problem is, is that the Pollyanna version doesn't really get to how hard that would be, right? It kind of assumes that like life would be suffused with meaning and opportunities for meaning if we just got rid of late capitalism, right? Mm. Um, and this is not true. Like it would be just as hard and difficult, if not more so, than it was before. There are opportunities for meaning and significance and stuff like that in this new life. And there may be new forms of it that weren't really available before, such as like the traveling symphony and stuff like that. Right. Mm. But it'd be really hard work to get there. And there'd be a lot of failure in addition to that. Right. Mm. But the key would be that hope is still warranted. And the thing, I mean, I don't want to get like, too much towards the end. And maybe we start talking about the sort of instances of these things in the show, but in the book, Jeevan and Kirsten don't go together. 
like they meet that night in the um, when Arthur dies in the play, the first episode of the series. Mm-hmm. In the book, they meet and then they go their separate ways, oh. and they never they never meet again. Oh. And yet, in the show, the whole series, the emotional core of the series is Jeevan and Kirsten to oh. the point where I'm sure this was true for you. When they finally reunite in the last episode, I was just bawling, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I just got chills right now thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And there are so many, and there, the, the several scenes that they're in in that last episode are just so incredible. And that's just a, a sort of, it's, it's earned, mm. right? You cry not because it's just sentimental, but because it's earned because there's been so much failure at this very thing, at finding significance and, and meaning, right? Mm. There's been so much failure at that and people who are lost and people who aren't able to make it. That when you do get that, it's so much more of like a shining jewel, right? Mm. And that's, I mean, that's what I appreciated so much about the series, probably even more so than the book, is that it really focused on navigating that difficult terrain of, you know, admitting how how exploitative the current system was the existing system was and the and the avenues for freedom that would exist outside of it while also owning up to the fact that that would involve lots and lots of traumatic death and suffering that many people may never be able to come back from like there's a real inherent tragedy to that whole thing at the same time and holding that duality in your mind right the kierkegaardian sense of like yes the tragedy and the suffering and the death are irrevocable but then you also have the the time like the the opportunities and pathways for freedom and meaning that exist at the same time. And you can't really reconcile them, right? They're just both there. Mm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I think for me, the thing that if I could like boil down the, uh, like a thesis of this series, what it, what it really comes down for me is also the, the power of myth, right? Like mythopoetic um, type of, of transformation and power. And so I love what you said about how it um, sort of dialectically works through those those two tropes of how the post-apocalyptic is typically handled, but it does it in a really like embodied way where it, 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 I don't think it's too simple to say, so the people who were alive before the apocalypse, um, the adults, the the Jeevans, right? Um, the the Franks for the first you know while um, the the uh, the older people that are part of the symphony or Clark and um, oh God what's um what was her name Elizabeth right Elizabeth yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting about them is they I mean a lot of them are involved in the arts so a lot of them are storytellers right but for them mm. they have that connection of the before that they try to somehow reproduce in to varying degrees, right? Clark explicitly with the museum um, and then the sort of like rebuilding of the society in the airport, which is, I love what you, it is. It is like a a kind of prison. It's a, a kind of enclosed, enclosed ecosystem, right? Um, that is separated from the world. And so it's creating, and we could talk about this in, in Gabrielle since it's creating a world, right? It's the creation of, a world in the kind of restrictive sense, right? Um, and uh, so you have them. And then you have Kirsten, who was a little different because she was born before, but she was a little girl. 
And her life was dedicated to not having the best family life, it seems, right? Like maybe a little bit neglected from her parents. So she didn't have a home. Her home was Arthur and her home was the theater and her home was stories. And so her experience of the after, let's say, is very different from Clark or very different from Elizabeth, who are carrying with them the traumas of the past, right? Relationship traumas, um, career Hmm. failures, you know, with Clark, it's him and his relationship with Arthur. And then of course the kids. And then with Elizabeth, it's all of her stuff with her career. She was a, you know, famous celebrity and, and things like that. With, with Kirsten, you don't really have that. You have this kind of, she was almost, um, this like walking embodiment of imagination, right? And so her life in the after was the flowering of that. And of course, what is she drawn to? She is like the 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 key, you know, kind of like the key member now of this traveling symphony that she um, she meets up with, you know, after after the first few years where she kind of does devolve into that sort of like, I'm just going to survive and kill. Right. It's she's hunting hmm. and she's killing and and she's doing all these things. And then she finds, oh, I don't need to kind of like engage at that level of of competition and scarcity and the violence. Now I can do something creative and constructive, although she still has that ability to kill, which you see when she fucking stabs Tyler, right? Um, when she stabs the prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, so she has that. The, and the red bandanas when she like massacres them. Yeah, she fucking massacres the red bandanas. So she still has that capacity, but that's not the highest expression of the life that she wants to live now. And then you have Alex, who I think is one of my favorite characters. The post pans. Yeah. 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 She's, she's, what do they call them? Posties? Post-pans. Post-pans. That's right. Post-pandemic. Post-pans. That's right. Um, the post-pan. And she she is so interesting because um, she has this innocence and curiosity about what was before, but it's never going to be, you know, it's kind of like that Freudian sense that every memory is always a mis- memory, right? Every, every, it's always a misrecognition, a misremembrance of, of what was Mm. right. It's always a fabrication of the past. Um, and so for her, she can only understand what the past was through story again by these other people misremembering what the past was in their efforts to like reproduce it in telling about it. And all she can do is really have some sort of approximation of what it was like. But really the world that she grows up in is the world of this traveling symphony that is just all about this, this like, um, DIY communal, uh, artistic, expressive, loving, performing world that they're creating, right? Now, they they too, though, they have their little world, which is the loop, right? The wheel that they follow around, and they don't leave the wheel for various reasons, right? Safety, it seems more mm-hmm. practical, but they too have a little bit of a world, and she wants to kind of, she wants more, right? She kind of wants to experience more. And so I think that's kind of an interesting way of kind of, uh, uh, of kind of trying to like throw a little bit of a bomb into the the desire to keep some aspects of the other world. And then you have like the children, the ones who follow the prophet, who they're kind of, they just don't belong, right? They, they like fully reject any residual, any residual um, offers, meaning, structure of 
um, either what Alex is experiencing or of what Kirsten is is um, exploring and then what the symphony are doing. And then, of course, what like Clark and them are trying to do. And they are like post post pan, you know, um, because they weren't even like Alex is like 20. Right. And so she was like born like right then right when it happened yeah whereas they're like 12 years old and they they they're even further separated from it and they just follow the promptings of this story that that can allow them to have some sort of desire to seek something that has almost no attachment to what was Right. And it's the radical rejection of the before. And they kind of have this like this loop story that they're telling that is kind of like this eternal recurrence type of thing that's really fascinating to me. And I think it keeps them like like impelled by this desire for the new. And so it's like these four different segments of people, you know, them, then like the Alex post pan, then like the Kirstens, then like the people who are trying to like reproduce the old order. And I think it creates this really lovely dynamic that is the visual and embodied representation or expression, let's say, of those two forms of media that we were talking about before, the two forms of how do you deal with the post-apocalyptic experience, um, but like breaking breaking the bounds beyond just the two. So it's no longer just a binary and, and it's no longer that it's a false choice between the two. And I think that's how they do it. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Yeah, dude. I mean, I, I love the tripartite division between the the pre-pans, the post-pans being the kids, and then like the, maybe like the mid-pans, even though that wasn't used, right? Yeah. Like the, the ones who who were old enough to remember the the end of the world, but they weren't quite formed yet. Like they didn't have social expectations and personal expectations for the life that were thwarted quite yet, right? I'm um, like Tyler and, and Kirsten being the, the, the two major ones, right? Mm. And so you can kind of see like if that's the case – then the mid pans are the ones who really have, like you said, the the boundless will of imagination. Like they're the ones who hmm. who have exposure to both worlds in such a way that they they really have the freedom to see the world rightly. But they also means they have the freedom to like see the world in as, as wrongly as possible, hmm. which is kind of where like Tyler's kind of moving back and forth between that, right? Like he Tyler runs away from the airport when he sees the horrible sort of, you know, reactionary violence of people screaming zombie and then shooting an innocent person who was sick, right? Mm. Um, and so he's he's fed up with that and decides, like, I'm not going to be part of this shit where someone gets sacrificed because people are scared. Um, so I'm out of here. Um, and so, like, the failure of the pre-pans to really, like, win him over, or not maybe not win him over, but to not alienate him, at least, Right. Is what leads him away. And that honestly, that kind of makes Jeevan somewhat the hero of the story, right? Because the people who failed Tyler and they alienated him, Jeevan takes that role for Kirsten. And it's really hard for him, and he's not good at it. He's not competent <laughs> as a parent. But he tries. Mm. He tries, right? And that keeps Kirsten around, even when she's clearly capable of like falling into this almost subpersonal state of just being a killing machine or whatever, right? Hmm. Um, and the, that's even evident, the fact that at the end of the last episode, when Kirsten is like thanking Jeevan and she says, you took me home, right? Or he says like, I tried to take you home that first night, you know, when she didn't have her keys or whatever. Hmm. And so he couldn't really take her home. And she says, no, you did take me home, hmm. which is a beautiful moment, right? Um, in the sense of like getting her where she needed to be. And then he says something like, or she says something like, I was never scared with you. 
which is also beautiful. And then he says even more beautifully, like I was scared all the time. <laughs> so like, yeah, or the whole time or something like that. Um, meaning like he isn't good at protecting and parenting and, and, and trying, but he like, he did it as best as he could. Hmm. And that's the only reason why Kirsten's not Tyler is because someone cared enough about a stranger to, um, to actually like care about them as a person. Uh, even, even if they ultimately kind of failed in a certain sense at the end and the sense that, you know, um, she thought that maybe he left him or disappeared or something. Um, she, he got her where she needed to go. Hmm. So yeah, there's a duality there to Tyler and Kirsten's experience. And that's, again, the contingency is important there, right? Like having that boundless imagination is both opportunity for, you know, great freedom, great expressions of freedom and also opportunity for like forming a fucking cult and like kidnapping kids. <laughs> mm. Right. Um, so even though it's ambiguous, whether Tyler's meant for it to like, go down the suicide vest route, um, he, he's, he's, he's almost pure evil in the book. Uh, so it's clear, clearly he's like a, a David Koresh, branch Davidians kind of guy, cult leader, but in the show, he's obviously much more oh. ambiguous and a little bit more of a hero. Interesting. I, I, I fuck. First of all, I just have to say the performances across the board um, are just magical. Like young Kirsten mm. is so fucking amazing. She's so good. Oh my <laughs> God. Like she's amazing. Um, Mackenzie Davis, if anyone's watched Halt, uh, Halt, what is it called? Halt and Catch Fire. Um, that's Mackenzie Davis's older Kirsten. Um, Jeevan, if you watched Don't Look Up, um, it's the actor that plays Jennifer Lawrence's boyfriend. Is that right at first? Um, isn't that... Hamesh Patel? Yeah. Isn't that who he was? I think. Was he? I don't remember. I don't remember if he was in Don't Look Up. Um, I think so. And then, then Lori Petty, who I like, remember tank girl, bro. Um, fucking oh, yeah. tank girl, point break, uh, free Willy. She was so rad. Um, and I haven't seen her in ages and for her character. And this is so great. Um, uh, Caitlin Fitzgerald is Elizabeth <laughs> and is, she plays Tabitha in succession, which is Roman's girl for, um, a bit. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then the actor that plays Tyler and then, um, Gael Garcia Bernal, who is like Motorcycle Diaries. If you saw Motorcycle Diaries, you've seen him. He's yeah. fucking total man crush on him. Um, but um, so uh, Daniel Zavato is who plays Tyler. And it's so interesting. And they're all amazing. Every single fucking perfect person in this is amazing. They have this like oddball mix of people who are like eccentric. Oh, and I just got to give a shout out to Alex too. Um, I've never, never heard of this actor before, but her name is Philippine Velga. And I think French or Belgian, something along those lines. Um, I think it's French Belgian. I think I, I read, um, um, she's absolutely amazing as this like super interesting. She looks like Peter Pan. So when they kept saying post pan, yeah. I was like, oh, and it's like she was stuck in this pan like state, which was really interesting because. Oh, yeah. Because it kind of helps with with her growth that like her maturity is her trying to experience something new. Right. There's a wisdom and a maturity that she's seeking by by expecting something more. But maybe she doesn't really know how to get it. So that's really interesting. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here. The prophet, the Tyler, the fact that he in the book is more like a David Koresh type of character is so interesting because I think what what Zavato does with this character in this series is so beautiful because I 100% agree with him and 100% think he's crazy within <laughs> within like the same 
same sentence so often, right? Like when he's first mm-hmm. introduced, he's obviously he's introduced as a sinister character. And you're like, oh, there's something going on here. And then the layers of his own trauma, um, the layers of what he's trying to run away from, but also what he's trying to build and his own wrestling with his personal trauma, with his relationship with his mother, but also his political trauma, which what you just talked about, his rejection of a world that just fucking couldn't listen, right? Like this is one of the things that Gabrielle talks about when he talks about his critique of the world. Like pretty much all efforts, he says, politically for create the creation of a world come from fear, right? And so it results in a type of dogmatic construction of the singular, right? The, the kind of like single narrative that can stand for all time that defines what this world is. And then anything that tries to breach that um, is a violation of that and must be punished or or is just deemed non-existent or crazy or whatever. And so everything ultimately can only take place within the confines of that world that establishes the singular singular plane of meaning or whatever. And um, and I think that that what you can see here is that what what Zavato is doing is he's critiquing the world of that airport ecosystem, right? Because yeah. it. It, it does respond in fear. Clark is very fearful, right? Like he's scared that um, he hates Hamlet. Yeah. Because Hamlet's anti-establishment. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't. That's right. He freaks out when they're like, oh, are we going to teach them this? And then these kids are going to start asking questions. Right. He's like, and if they start <laughs> questioning the order, like he's the he's the tyrant that 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 has to suppress, that has to kill. And um, and the stories have to be propagandized and they have to be spun. And and I think that that Tyler, he has a personal trauma with feeling like his mother rejected him. But he also has that political trauma and it makes him such a layered character, such a rich character. And I think there's so much to explore there. And this is this is when like the rich sense of how the personal is political can kind of come to the fore for me, because it isn't just like. The personal is political in some sort of like tropey sense where it's like, oh, well, if you buy coffee from local organic farms, that's a political act. Like, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, great. But that's not really what what I'm talking about here. I'm talking more about like the fucking personal traumas of of being crushed by the human experience at a familial level. And also at a larger societal level. And that's that's when resentment, anger, motivation, consciousness, those things are forged under those conditions. And that's, I think, a richer way of conceptualizing what, what we might be able to speak of when we speak of how the personal might be political. It's in that sense. It's how the individual consciousness is related both to your embodied experience – and then also into varying degrees of um, an, an encounter with with things outside of us, whether it's family, society, a larger political ecosystem, whatever. And I think his character for me is so fascinating with how he deals with that. And, and, I, and I found him to be such a sympathetic character to the point where I actually I like agree with so much of what he's he's struggling with. And I'm like, I get it. You know, it's like there's there's a real rationality there. Yeah, that's so good, dude. And I, and I love that bringing in the person as the personal to political thing theme, because that's, I think, woven throughout. And, you know, the thesis of the show seems to me is, if there is a thesis, art is integral and central 
to that developmental process, to sustaining us yes. in that developmental process, both because there's two ways it seems to kind of do it, right? And I think there's two scenes that are my two favorite scenes in the whole series, and they kind of typify these, I think, these two ways that art plays this function of sustaining us in this, in this you know, struggle or developmental struggle um, towards individual like self-actualization, but also in the midst of, of others as well. Um, well, first of all, can you guess what my favorite moment in the whole series is? I think it's kind of obvious if you know me. Gosh, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Episode seven, and it involves a song that you probably know is from my favorite hip hop group. Oh, is it when they play, um, uh, can I kick it? Yes, you can. Can I kick it? Well, that's, that's, that's later. That's with Jeevan at the island. Yeah. yeah, Can I kick it? Yeah. But the original one is when Frank, um, there's, it's still like year one or whatever, year zero. Oh, when they do and the, Frank, the, and when he, when he, when he flows, when they're in the, the, his, his penthouse. Yeah. So here's the story. Dude. It's, <laughs> I, I got the chills when this happened. I had no idea this was going to happen. No one had mentioned it or I hadn't seen it spoiled. And my favorite hip hop group of all time is Tribe Cold Quest. And my favorite tribe song from my favorite album, Low End Theory, is Excursions. Right. Yeah. First song on that record with a simple jazzy bass line and then the drums and the way they set this up is so brilliant. I just it's, it might be my favorite moment of like of cinematic history. at this point. <laughs> it's only been like a, four days since I saw it. But still, yeah, the setup is Frank is a ghostwriter and he has these tapes from the per, from the person whose autobiography that he's writing. I don't even remember the backstory. Of this guy. He's working on it even though the world's ended and this person's almost certainly dead because he needs something to do, right? And he figures out – and the, the power has been cut so they're like freezing in Chicago in a high-rise in winter. And he, and he figures out he can take these tapes that have been recorded for him with this person relaying their, <laughs> their life story. And he can loop them and mess with the sounds to create basically the baseline from excursions. And so he creates the baseline from excursions, boom, 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 that one, right? With this guy's voice, and then wraps almost the entirety of the song that of Q-tips um, verses and chorus in it uh, with that looped baseline, and then they slowly bring in the actual baseline and drums from the actual song hmm. in the background, and it was incredible. And the guy Frank does it flawlessly. Great. And I read in an interview with Patrick Somerville, the, the creator of the show, that he did it in one take. It wasn't the first take, but he did the whole thing in one take. Hmm. And that he loved Tribe, the actor who played Frank, whose, whose name escapes me right now, and was so excited about doing it. And it was <laughs> like, it was it was seamless for him, right? He, and that's why he, and he's like, he's crippled, right? And so he's like climbing on the table with his cane, yeah. delivering these, these lines and these bars, right? And it, it's so amazing to see this. And his explanation to Jeevan and to Kirsten is, look, this will keep us warm. Mm. He's so excited to tell them about how he looped this baseline with these audio tapes that he has. And his, and his reason for being so excited about it and having to tell them about it is that this will keep us warm. It's like art is going to sustain us. Creation is going to sustain us through the worst things we can imagine. Like, like we might freeze to death in this high rise. Right. So that's the first one. Art sustains us mm. in this process of getting through. And then the second one is, and I'm curious what you think about this. Cause I wasn't sure how to interpret it. I just watched it last night. So I haven't been able to like read around about it. But then the last episode, 
they perform Hamlet yeah. in the airport, right? And Tyler's going to play Hamlet, which he like learns that day. I guess you, I guess you could do that. <laughs> and then Elizabeth, Elizabeth, his mother plays Gertrude, and then Clark plays Claudius, who's kind of like a an alienating father figure to Tyler, just like Claudius is to Hamlet, right? And of course, in Hamlet. Hamlet's fucking alienated and pissed off and wants to burn everything down to the ground, right? He's bent on like vengeance. It seems like what they were saying was here is art being used as a medium for Tyler and for Elizabeth and for Clark to forgive each other, Mm. to like let go of the trauma, knowing that everybody in this situation made huge mistakes and was weak and it was terrible at certain points. But that they're all traumatized by the same shit. And if they can just find a way to forgive, they could move on without holding that debilitating desire for vengeance that cripples Hamlet and makes that a tragedy, right? I don't know if that was actually what's happening there, but that's how I read it because it's pretty ambiguous. I was like, what if Hamlet could forgive? I thought that was the intent of Elizabeth wanting Tyler to play like want like I thought I thought that was the whole point of of Kirsten and Elizabeth getting Tyler because he's in he's in prison and then they decide that he's going to be Hamlet and I thought that was the point all along was that if he can if he can do this if he can create with his mother and with the Mm -hmm. figurehead of this world that traumatized him if he can create with them, then it isn't allowing them to get away with it, but it's finding the productive capacity to actually create out from trauma. And to me, that is what the fucking politics that I'm talking about for my shitty minute. That's what it is. <laughs> that's what it yeah. fucking is. I mean, it, and for me, that was my favorite. And to be clear, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's not restorative in the sense of like, he doesn't stay. No. He doesn't decide to be Clark's best friend. He leaves. And so does Elizabeth, right? So it's like they're forever broken, their relationship in a certain sense. But it does seem like they can kind of let go and move on. So they're not driven by this desire for vengeance anymore that fuels all the worst things that they've done. And there's that great moment because Alex gives him the knife and I thought that he was going to kill Clark um, or his mother, right, (laughs) on stage. (laughs) Um, And I think even Kirsten thinks that for a minute once she realizes. And and I thought that he was actually going to do it. I was like, oh, fuck. So that was to me what created a lot of the dramatic tension. But I think even like what you're talking about, kind of like the more productive conceptual work that's being performed there is – Precisely what you're talking about is he has an option here to continue the cycle of violence or he has a different option. And and this is why art to me is so important as a political action, because you can't really predict what Mm. it's going to be. Right. You said that it's not restorative. He leaves. He could have like they could have written it that he has some sort of connection with his mother or something like that. That would have been kind of the more saccharine Hollywoodized ending. Um um, he could have killed them, right? Like you don't know. But the point is, is, is by them being in that productive environment, that's when novelty can kind of like break forth. And um, 
to me that it was like the perfect crescendo because it's such like a such like such high stakes but without like without like explosions and shit like there's an explosion but the explosion isn't even the the most exciting part like the explosion is only important because they're like oh shit does that trigger something like it's it's fucking a scene of this people doing hamlet in makeshift costumes in an, an abandoned <laughs> airport um where you've got like family trauma like that's 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 the most impactful like that's where like it, it hits you in your guts you know um yeah and i yeah i mean i loved that I think you're totally right about the the elevation of art there as a sort of political tool, but even more than just a tool, it, like it is political itself, right? In the sense yeah. of it sustains us like it did for Frank in doing the tribe track, right? And it frees us. Like Tyler was controlled by his desire for vengeance mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And that and ends up with a lot of kids being harmed in the process. And it's hard to forgive that, right? Yeah. Um, but also he, you think about Tyler. He's only read one book in his entire life, <laughs> and that's Station Eleven. Right? Yeah. So, like, his whole world is just that, and so he re- he gets to read Hamlet, right? He gets to experience art, for probably the first or like basically second time in his life, right? Mm. And it frees him. It's the thing that allows him. It doesn't like compel him, but it allows him to have the moment of freedom where he's able to let go of the vengeance and and kind of forgive in a certain sense, Clark. Not like. Forgive in the sense of like, oh, everything you did was fine. That's not what forgiveness is, right? But forgive in the sense of letting go of the need for vengeance hmm. that he had and being able to move on with his mother and these like a hundred or whatever kids. It's a weird thing going on there. Um, yeah, and it seems like Clark and Elizabeth are able to to move beyond their hangups as pre-pans as well. Um, there's probably some sense in which like, Art like Arthur Leander's the the like the, the locus of of the Clark and Elizabeth suffering in a lot of ways and Miranda too right and so he's gone but they're they're able to kind of deal with that vicariously through Tyler maybe something like that's going on isn't isn't there maybe also something to think about that had Tyler killed then somehow he would have actually been succumbing to the before right and that. That even though he had the desire to maybe and he had the impulse to, like had he killed in a literal sense, then he couldn't have had maybe a deeper sense in which he could transfigure it through a more like figurative, metaphorical, proximal, you know, um, contestation. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, the difference between Kirsten killing to protect and him killing out of vengeance is that like he's not in control of his desire for vengeance. It controls him. Mm. Whereas Kirsten's need to protect people flows like from her inner character, right? It's been developed through the fact that like Jeevan protected her when she needed it most and when her parents had kind of abandoned her or whatever was happening there in the on day zero, right? Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think it's a fantastic show. I, 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 I love what you said. Art sustains us. Art frees us. I mean, fucking episode title just fucking came out of your lips there, Troy. Beautiful. <laughs> um, to me, that was, that was the overwhelming thing. I watched this film and I felt refreshed and inspired to want to create. 
Right. And to me, that's my favorite type yeah, of, I wanted a podcast. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> that's, that's, that's <laughs> it, man. Fucking create concepts, bro. <laughs> um, but I did, I just, I just felt this overwhelming excitement. Like, yes, it is, it is story and it is art. Um, I mean, I, 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 I think that literally art is everything. Um, I think that it's just varying degrees and different kinds and sorts and different expressions. But I think that everything that humans do is an expression of, of some form of imaginative creation. And so for me, even politics, um, the reason that when politics gets shitty is because it's a distortion of um, a sort of animating principle to create. And so for me, I think the reason that this series is so powerful and, and why we're talking about that Tyler moment for me is that's so interesting is that it's about um, how to kind of think of different ways to create, right? Um, different forms of political imagination, different forms of personal imagination. And, um, and I think that's what the whole series was about, which is also why like Kirsten's joining of this troupe, this traveling theater troupe to me is, is so brilliant because her entire life is just the embodiment of one bringing joy to people, um, but sharing in the process of myth-making. Right. And, um, I think it's interesting that they only do Shakespeare and that they always do Shakespeare. I think there's probably yeah. some more stuff that we could explore about, what it is about Shakespeare and his relationship to the before as sort of like creating so much of, of the Western world's politics, culture, English language, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think there's probably a lot that we could explore, you know, in, in subsequent chats, or I'm sure people are writing about this. If not, they should be. Um, but yeah, there's, there's just so much to say about, about what art can do and then what art does um, in our lives. And, and for me, that's why, that's why this series was so great. And I love it. And I think it's going to stick with me kind of like leftovers has like I, in my mind, like yeah. leftovers is my favorite series that I've ever seen. Um, and I feel like station 11, and I've seen it twice now. And I feel like station 11 might be like in that same category. It kind of just hits me in, in very similar, similar ways, you know, leftovers being, yeah, uh, I believe Patrick's go, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was leftovers. Oh, wasn't Pat Patrick wasn't Patrick Somerville a writer on Leftovers? Oh, it makes so much sense. Okay. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, makes so much fucking sense. So, yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts about the series before we move on to the final segment? Well, I just wanted to say, you know, your point about everything being art. I think it's a super important point, especially when we're talking about this was the elevated role or function for art to play in personal and social development, right? Hmm. It's crucial, like integral role. And that's that, you know, I think I said on the podcast before, but one thing, one way you can construe like or categorize all the intrinsically meaningful activities is like creations, appreciations, and relationships, hmm. right? And those are all art, I think. Hmm. Like we can we can think of those as all as being art. Anything that's sort of an intrinsically valuable activity. And so that means the things we typically call art are creations, right? But I think appreciations of arts are also arts. Like you're engaging in the in the function of arts when you appreciate it. So even if you don't yourself make a whole lot of stuff, if you're involved in the community as an appreciator, that's also art in a way. Like you're you're part of that community and part of that. Um, activity when you do so. And so are relationships, right? Because relationships revolve around those things, creations and appreciations. 
um, both in terms of, you know, mm. external like artifacts, but also in people, like appreciating people and creating people happens in relationships. Like you are, you co-constitute one another as you engage in activities together, right? So that whole nexus of, you know, any activity that's meaningful on its own is art in this way. And that's the, the thing that's so important. I think about thinking about of art as having this, this really high and elevated function, um, mm. for persons and for social development as well, is that it involves all these kinds of activities. Creations, appreciations, and relationships. That's, um, that's a book. We got a lot of books that, uh, we've, uh, come up with like little, little simple ideas for on this podcast. Someone's going to have to collate them for us one day. Cause we have like 160 episodes. But there's a lot of books in here, Troy. We got to write some books. Uh, well, yeah, dude, m- maybe when we're real old and we're like, uh, one of, the, one of those bands from the seventies just come back to play a couple shows of the hits, <laughs> right? Cause they need like some, di- they need their diabetes medication or whatever. Yeah. Um, like that'll, we'll just sell the transcripts of our podcasts as an anthology. I love it. Done. That would be a long ass anthology. 161 chapters. <laughs> I mean, how many, how many chapters are we going to get to? I'm thinking we've got to get to at least 700 before we die. Like, you know, cause then we, <laughs> then, then with the 700 club, but without Pat Robertson. So it would be, it would be awesome to call it the 700 club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Um, let's go ahead and wrap up that there. Listen, I, I, I can't recommend this series enough. I haven't read the book, but, um, I, I guess the book is amazing too. It sounds to me though, like I actually kind of would prefer just holding on to the memory that I have of the series because of, of the direction that it took um, a couple of the characters and a couple of the storylines. But, um, but yeah, check that madness out. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, would you say that you preferred the series to the book? I mean, I just finished the series last night, so I'm still ruminating on it. But like my, my initial reactions are, I actually think that the series improved wow. on the themes of the book. I mean, especially with the Jeevan Kirsten thing, yeah. with the the focus on, on, on how the role that art plays in these in these matters and the, and the sort of obviously the Shakespeare stuff is in the book, but the the way that Hamlet plays that role for Tyler, the kind of redemptive role for Tyler, obviously never happens in the book because Tyler's just evil. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I might, I think I might think the show is better. Wow, and not in the sense that like it's a it's a ten out of ten. And the book was a nine out of ten or whatever, but in the sense of like there are themes in the book that the show maybe encapsulates or embodies better. And that's, you know, the show couldn't exist without the book. So it relies upon the book in a way the book doesn't rely upon the show. But that's fine. Like, adaptation can be creative reimaginings in this way, right? It can do that and do it really well. And this is a great example of that. And we're fine with that when it comes to, like, classical literature. We're fine with reimaginings. So we should be fine with it when it's contemporary stuff, too, as long as it's good and not just, like, ham-fished and bullshit. Hmm. Yeah, love that. All right, let's go ahead and wrap that up there, and then let's jump in now to the sticky leaves. This is the segment of the podcast where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a world that is often devoid of meaning. I mean, obviously, this whole podcast episode is really about stuff that's giving us <laughs> meaning. But um, since you, since this was inspired by a, a previous sticky leaves of yours, Troy, I have high expectations for what you're going to be talking to us about here. So what is giving you meaning at the moment in this dark, p- potentially abyssal universe that we um, currently walk through? Well, I'm afraid I might subvert expectations because oh. this is more of just a, uh, an explosion of joy song oh. or whatever. 
than it is something actually something I'm just really excited about and maybe also a bit of a teaser for something we're going to do in the future on the podcast in some form or another. And that's motherfucking winning time, <laughs> a.k.a. Showtime, the 80s Lakers HBO show by Adam McKay. It's coming out in just a few weeks, March 6th, brother. That's when it's starting. <laughs> now, how can you have so much excitement? You haven't seen it yet. What if it sucks? Because I'm. Well, I, I lived it, first of all, <laughs> and I read the book. Okay. Okay. All right. So winning time, which, by the way, uh, fuck whatever HBO executives like. We can't call this this show Showtime, even though it's obviously should be called Showtime because our competitor is Showtime. Who's going to get confused and buy Showtime to watch this show? Like even if they did, they would go and get HBO when they figured out they were wrong. Wait, is that I mean, come on, man? Is that why they changed? Is that why they changed that, the name? Yeah, that's why they changed it. That dude. is, that, I'm calling it Showtime. Oh come on! <laughs> it makes me want to buy. It's it so makes me want to watch Showtime just to spite them because that's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and, and apparently, Adam McKay had called it Showtime throughout the development, oh. and then at some point they just wouldn't. They wouldn't let him keep doing it. Jesus. So that fucking sucks. But anyway, who gives a crap? I'm going to call it Showtime anyway. I hope everyone else does too. Winning Time's a kind of dumb name. But here's the setup, right? LA Lakers in the 80s. Watch the two trailers that are out. I'm really excited because I didn't know what the tone of this was going to be. And the book is a sports history book, right? It's a sports history book, so it doesn't necessarily have a sort of dramatic tone to it necessarily, right? So... I wasn't sure how it was going to look, but the trailers make it look like it's basically Boogie Nights. And it's using film also, right? Instead of being digital. So it's going for that 70s kind of grainy style. It looks like it's going to be funny. It looks like it's going to be hints of drama, right? There'll be some tragedy and stuff in there, but it looks like it's got to have like a cool and funny vibe to it, which is exactly how it should be, right? That's perfect, like pitch perfect tone for this whole thing. Listen to this cast, dude. John C. Riley is playing Jerry Buss, <laughs> owner of the Lakers in the 80s. Fantastic. Apparently, Michael Shannon was a was was Jerry Buss originally. And he even like shot some scenes. Oh wow. As Jerry Buss. And then he dropped out for creative differences or something like that. I love Michael Shannon, but he ain't Jerry Buss. John C. Riley is Jerry Buss. <laughs> it's perfect. It is perfect. That smile, the gregariousness, the charm, right? That's John C. Riley. That's Jerry Buss. It's perfect. Um, Jason Clark is Jerry West. Not sure how that's going to work out. Jason Clark's great, though, so I'm sure he'll embody it well. Jerry Buss, uh, Jerry West is kind of, you know, he's obviously a, a basketball icon and legend. Very understated, kind of a sad individual, a lot of tragedy in his life. We'll see how they're going to actually play his role. Um, they've got a couple of non, either non-actors or, or just not well-known actors as Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But the guy who's playing Magic's got that smile. So it looks good so far, right? Mm -hmm. Norm Nixon's son is playing him, which is interesting. All right. Um, Adrian Brody is playing Pat Riley, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> Sally Field is playing Jesse Buss, Jerry Buss's wife. Michael Chiklis is playing Red Auerbach, the coach of the Celtics, which is chef's kiss. Perfect, <laughs> right? Jason Siegel's playing the coach before Pat Riley, Pat, uh, Paul Westhead. And down the line, just great actors everywhere. I can't wait. It looks so good. 
I'm going to be really pumped for it and I'm going to be super disappointed if it's not good. <laughs> but I'm confident that they have the source material. The tone looks perfect. I don't expect it to be like a revolutionary TV show or anything. It's just going to be a fun time, right? And if we can have anything like The Last Dance was, obviously different genre, like that was, you know, bullshit documentary or whatever. Michael Jordan looking at the iPad for 30 minutes. And that was still amazing, right? Yeah. If we can just get the vibes of that, like the cool, awesome vibes of that in this sort of dramatized version of the Showtime 80s Lakers, I, I, I couldn't be more all in to this. And I'm I'm super excited for what the like the basketball community is going to be like when this comes out, because we have not had anything like this. Like Last Dance is the closest thing, right, to a kind of almost monocultural event that revolves around basketball. Well, that's the only thing we have to compare that to. That was awesome. What's that Soderbergh film? I mean, I guess, yeah, not like monocultural, but what's what was that Soderbergh series? Oh, the the movie you mean? Or was it a movie? Yeah, that was on Netflix about the um, the agent who wants to like upset the NBA or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but that wasn't like you said, like a monocultural event. Do you think this is going to have that kind of traction? I mean, it's, it's HBO, it's Adam McKay, who's one of, you know, the biggest directors in the world right yeah. now, right? It's got tons of stars in it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it won't be monocultural like a Game of Thrones or something like that, right? But if it, if it reaches anything close to like 80% of what The Last Dance did, I would think so. And there's a lot of old people who remember 80s basketball. Here's my concern. Be watching. I'm not hearing a lot of buzz about this, though. I'm hearing about it from you and I'm hearing about it a little bit. And like when the trailer came out. But I wonder I wonder why. Like, I'm not seeing a lot of like push for it right now. Are you? I mean, I am just because I'm, you know, I follow a lot of basketball. <laughs> OK, OK. Social yeah. media. So my, so my yeah, my uh, my inner circle or whatever is locked in. It's siloed in on this stuff. Okay. So I'm not the right person to ask, but they also just, I think they just announced the premiere being in like three weeks or whatever. Uh, and that's pretty soon. Like I, I think they were probably thinking of waiting until the summer or something. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe it, it but I mean, it's, it's going to be HBO's flagship show, I think for March, it seems like. So, okay. So those shows always get, yeah, we got to We got to wait a little bit too. I think we're still dealing with a little bit of the hangover of the Super Bowl. You know, um, yeah. that just passed. Yeah. So we got to let that pass. Uh, and then in terms of sports right now, there's not like like, yeah, you, the NBA is going on. The playoffs are coming up here. So this will be good to like to ramp up to the playoffs, probably, you know, um, yeah, about a month before the playoffs. start. Yeah. So maybe that'll be good. So maybe maybe this will kind of like actually like build up more mo- momentum, you know. But yeah, so maybe that's maybe I'm just feeling because well, like all the sports stuff that I'm seeing is still just talking about fucking Super Bowl or UFC or the trade deadlines in the NBA. I haven't seen too much interaction with the show, but maybe that's just because uh, I'm not following the right people or something. Oh, there's also just there's only been two trailers. So what, there's not that much to talk about. OK, right. Um, it, it's the Sunday show. So HBO's Sunday night show is their flagship one, right? So they're going to, they're going to pump the hell out of it. And yeah, you're right. I hadn't noticed this, but it, it's 10 episodes. So it'll be like 10 weeks. It's going to go through March, April, and the first couple of weeks of May. And the playoffs usually start in, uh, around the middle of April. So during the first couple of rounds of the playoffs is when it's going to be at its peak. Mm. So I think they're probably trying to get like the conversation around that. And also baseball who knows when they're on lockdown or lockout right now. So they might not even start. Mm. 
Um, so it might be like the only thing happening in, in the major American sports. I mean, who's, who, who knows? But it could be something like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I'm excited because I watched it and the vibe of the trailer had like this like boogie nights feel to it. Like I felt like, yeah, you know what I mean? It, it felt kind of like that, like this energy that I was like, oh, shit. And as much as I didn't love Don't Look Up, I still love Adam McKay as uh, as a shooter of of filmic images. So I'm excited because, you know, it's going to be fast paced. You know, the cutting is going to be sharp. The editing is going to be sharp. The music's going to be slick. Um, and then he always does get great performances and he assembles great casts. So no matter what happens, I feel like it's just going to flow. Like it's going to have a great energy to it. And I think that's kind of, that's what you got to have. If it's going to be about the Showtime Lakers, I'm just super annoyed that, that it was called Showtime, but they didn't do it because they didn't want to like use the term <laughs> of their competitor. Like to me, that's just, that's just childish. That's just like, stop. <laughs> It's it's guaranteed to be like a 70 year old dude who's like following the rules that were set forth in like 1978 about what you can and can't yeah. like name shit. I mean, come on, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's hilarious. Um, so you read the book. Yeah, Jeff Perlman. It's called Showtime. Great sports book. Uh, I don't read a lot of sports books. I don't read any, really. So I don't know how it compares, but I mean... Anybody who's a Laker fan who's read it like raves about it. It's really a well-resourced, a lot of great uh, interviews and stuff. So, and it's and it's like it's a little scandalous. I and mean, that was a, not a non-scandalous time in the NBA, uh, especially around the Lakers. So I'm curious to see how how they're going to do that. I think I can't remember if any of the Lakers are are, are producers. Maybe the buses are. I'm not positive, but if they are, my guess is it won't be as scandalous as as the book is, but we'll see about that. Well, and so, that'll be a fun thing to talk about. And so McKay obviously has had a turn, um, you know, since he started doing like big short and vice and don't look up and stuff like that. And, you know, being a producer for a succession where he's doing a lot of like political and social commentary. So what do we think here? Is there a lot of stuff in the book that is, is ripe for that kind of exploration? No, I highly doubt it. Okay. Um, I mean, they could with some of the bus family stuff, but I, I think they're probably just going to lean into the good vibe stuff. And there'll be like <laughs> a lot of family drama for sure and stuff like that and like palace intrigue, but, you know, in the locker room as opposed to in a castle or okay. in the White House or whatever. So it's not going to be like sports as a microcosm for politics or society larger than that. I mean, it might hint at that and there'll be a little bit of that, but I think it's mostly going to be like a a good vibes, um, fun times kind of thing, especially given the, the John C. Riley as <laughs> Jerry Buss. It seems like he's kind of going to be the protagonist a little bit, yeah. a, a little bit of an anti-hero protagonist because he's also going to have like potentially underage women on his arms at all times. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, it was 1979, you know, different time. Um, <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. I'm not sure, yeah. but I think you're right. The Boogie Nights thing definitely comes across. So that, that seems like the vibe. Okay. Do you think I'm going to watch it and I'm going to see it as a microcosm for uh, society? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're going to have to do podcasts or podcasts. On it, so there's going to be a lot to dig through. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. 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 No, I'm looking forward to it. I am ever since he sent me the first trailer. So um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. All right, sick. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there, brother. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, remember, you can follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore Dawn, or on Insta, same 
Uh, same name, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash owls at dawn and throw us some coin if you can support the show and also if you want access to bonus episodes. And as Troy said, if you want to take part in choosing a future uh, episode topic that we'll talk about here in the next couple of weeks. We'll probably, the next episode, will have announced what the topics are going to be, and then we'll open it up to a vote. So, but feed us feed us some suggestions. So go there and flood our patron, especially if you are already a Patreon a patron supporter. You know the deal. You've done this in the past. So just flood us with some suggestions that we can um, that we can address, and we'll go ahead and do that. And I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything I have forgotten to say, Troy. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Dania Marikonski.